thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to Backchat, exploring the five pillars of health with Dr. Paul Bergamo and Dr. Anthony Coxon. Welcome to Backchat. My name is Paul Bergamo and it's great to be here in our inaugural podcast. Backchat explores the five pillars of health that refers to being your best in thinking, eating, moving, sleeping, and also in your neurology. Today we're going to explore the health pillar of being your best in your neurology. To help me, it's a great pleasure I introduce my fellow chiropractor and co-host, Anthony Coxon. Hi, Anthony. How are you? Hi, Paul. I'm fantastic. Very excited. This is going to be great. Excellent. Now, you were saying to me this morning something about your weekend. What happened? Yeah, it was a bit of an action-packed weekend. Uh, as you know, I'm a recent uh, mammal, which is a middle-aged man in Lycra. I've taken up <laughs> cycling, uh, especially to uh, you know try and compete and keep up with my son, who took it up a few months earlier. Right. And out on a big ride, we've just done the hill climb on the way uh, back home, trundling along, dolls in front, going hell for leather, only focusing on the wheel turning in front of him and probably the first five metres, not realising that the traffic that we were coming up to had stopped. Oh, I can feel it. Oh, it wasn't good. So he's focused, intently focused on just speed, 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 doesn't have that greater awareness of this is about uh, okay. to happen yes okay and it was like watching your life in slow motion oh, wow. you just knew it was going to happen the cars pulled out and he's ended up a, a wow. on a bmw right thank goodness joel's fine okay. remarkably the bike was only minor damage right can't say the same for the bmw okay. they had a nice little dent in it that can be fixed yeah that can be fixed yeah and but most importantly a great lesson for him on uh you know sometimes it's good to be focused and yep. sometimes we need yes. to broaden our focus and expand our neurology and look outside of uh of our immediate environment and i guess that's what we're talking about a little bit about today well look what a great father-son sort of bonding experience isn't it anthony so thank you for sharing that and look yes you're right today we are going to be exploring the health pillar of being your best in your neurology and we are very fortunate to have dr paul noon with us as our health expert paul is not only a chiropractor but he's also completed his phd in health psychology and complementary medicine at the university of exeter he's a very experienced chiropractor been in practice for 30 years where 10 of those were spent in dublin ireland in the 90s during which he completed his postgraduate training in chiropractic neurorehabilitation. Paul's been teaching clinical neuroscience to chiropractors for 15 years, and currently he practices in the beautiful suburb of Hampton, Melbourne, Australia. So, hi Paul, how are you going? I'm very well, Paul. Excellent. Excellent. So, broadly speaking, Paul, with your uh, background in neurology, can you explain to our audience uh, what does neurology mean and how does this compare to the term neuroplasticity, please? Well, good question, Paul. Um, simply, neurology is the study of the human nervous system. Uh, most registered health practitioners uh, worldwide are required to study neurology on their way to qualifying to whatever profession they, they emerge in. And as you know, chiropractors are no exception to this. Um, so, neurology, the study of the nervous system, and plasticity or neuroplasticity is, is a really a, a bigger word these days in the, in the last probably 30 years in the whole area of, of clinical neuroscience. And this is uh, where you know, I spend a lot of my time. 
And the, neuro, the neuroplasticity term really relates to the ability of the nervous system to create and bind new connections between the nerve cells. Okay. And these cells are called neurons in the nervous system. Now, for us as human beings, it's a really handy ability because we may need new connections to be built when we're learning a new task okay. or when an area of the nervous system is damaged. And the concept of neuroplasticity is a relatively new concept. Really, it's only been around for a short period of time in the sense of neurology, which has been around for hundreds, if not thousands of years. So it wasn't so long ago that if a person had a stroke or brain damage or any major serious injury, they were wheeled into a corner of a nursing home and placed in front of the television, and that was it. Wow. Nowadays, the, the concept of neuroplasticity has changed that attitude. Neuroplasticity is now informing rehabilitation strategies that can be applied long after an injury with the knowledge that if you keep repeating that rehabilitation, new pathways can be forged and binded in the nervous system through those repeated therapeutic strategies. So great days, great days for all of us. Thank goodness we've moved on. Uh, Paul, just so I understand this, if a person was to walk into, say, a medical neurologist, how would that experience be different to walking into your office? Well, first of all, quite simply, that medical neurologist would be a, a medical doctor and, and Western medicine, probably into the last probably 20 years, has really been interested in, in diseases or injuries and pharmaceutical or drug ways of fixing those or surgical ways of fixing those. And those, those methods are still very, very important for us. But... The medical profession itself, especially medical neurologists, have recognised that functional or disconnective disorders are also walking through their doors these days. Okay. Uh, they're very concerned that their ability to deal with these, there's been some good research recently, to deal with those types of patients has been inadequate. Yeah. Uh, they're really trying to address that. If that person walked into my office... Um, I would try to be more interested in how the function of the remainder of the uninjured nervous system is affected by that damage there. And this is a really important concept because I might have an injury to my right knee joint, for example, but that might impact the rest of my nervous system in such a manner it could possibly be contributing to maybe pain in the opposite shoulder. Now, that might seem really strange to someone 50 years ago, but someone in the whole area of applied clinical neuroscience now starts to understand that. So a good understanding of the complex connections of the nervous system is essential to a health professional like me who's engaging in functional neurorehabilitation. So, I mean, Paul, with your experience of doing this sort of work in the last 15 years, do you, do you see there's a trend of change with, with the relationship, say, with your practice in Hampton with if not neurologists or GPs, about the sort of work that you're doing? Yeah, I, I think um, there's a percentage of uh, the conventional, traditional Western medical profession that is extremely interested in this type of work. Um, we know, for example, that many integrative Western medical doctors that are employing a lot of what we would call natural or complementary strategies within their medical, uh, their medical practice. And... To a degree now, we are seeing a, 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 a thin layer of the Western medical neurology profession starting to be much more interested in these rehabilitation strategies. Now, if you go to a, a rehab centre where you've actually had a car accident or a motor vehicle accident, 
and I've had to recently go with a friend to visit a friend of mine who had a serious stroke and it was very upsetting. I went in and didn't know what I was going to see because I hadn't been to a rehab facility in Melbourne here for a while and I was amazed. There was the, the sensory garden, there was the sensory room, there was multi-sensory activation. So I would have to say um, that, yes, there is genuine interest now in this type of connection, rehabilitation, using the senses to stimulate the brain. And that's basically what, what we do but in, in my work, but it is interesting to see that. So, look, there are some neurological signs that, um, you know, for example, we all need to be aware of, um, you know, sudden loss of sense or gradual weakness and things like that could be quite serious. Um, but to me, when someone walks in, most of those conditions have been dealt with and I'm here now to try and develop strategies to bring these people back uh, without drugs and without surgery. So, and that's what many of them are interested in. And, you know, following on from that, so could a person who comes to see you have an underlying problem associated with their neurology and not really know this? And if so, what could be done? Yeah, well, that, that's the plastic that's the plastic method of our body. We can have an injury or a disease and luckily for us, our nervous system uh, is a great adapter. It's able to find a strategy to keep you moving and keep you walking. It may not be the most ideal strategy that you may not know as a patient that this is happening, um, but the adaptive strategy may eventually break down and you may come along to see someone because that adaptive nervous system strategy is not coping anymore. Uh, um, so we see this all the time and we see it in areas of, of balance and uh, of spinal cord injuries and uh, even joint injuries that are eventually causing troubles right through the whole nervous system. People changing the way they walk, changing the way they move, change the way they think even. So yeah, um, we, we do identify that. For us, what can be done? Well, if we can have a, a strategy of examining someone to identify those adaptations, which which we try to have in our practices, um, then we have a chance of maybe honing in on the, the real problem, but at the same time recognising those secondary problems can be a concern. So if we go back to that knee joint problem that I mentioned before, someone could have a knee injury uh, and they present to me with a shoulder, but if we do do a full assessment, we can say, you know what, that knee problem is really where you're troubling. You might have had it 10 years ago, but we need to also address that. So we spend a lot of time trying to get to the root of some of these problems so we can um, we can uh, avoid just treating the adaptation. So uh, hopefully it, it tends to work and we have good fun doing it with our patients, to be honest. So, Paul, one of the understand of the, the basic tenets of chiropractic neurological rehabilitation is to not only look at the person as a whole, but to really break down what happens at a cellular level. And I know uh, we they talk about you know things such as getting the right oxygen supply, getting the right fuel, getting the right activation, and how that influences a cell, and therefore how it influences the uh, health of a human being. Can you explain that a little bit more? Well, Anthony, there are a hundred billion neurons in the nervous system. It's like like that's just so hard to con to conceive. <laughs> it's like looking out into the into the stars and seeing all these stars. A hundred billion. Oh, who they can these, have who up to ten thousand other neurons connecting with them. Like just think about that. It, it's mm. just scary when you think yeah, about yeah. it. So you can see that the neuron is a very busy cell and it never switches off. It's right. on all the time. Okay. So if it's idling it's resting, but it's still idling. And when it's ready to go, it's got to be ready to go for a short burst of time. Then it's got to rest and idle, burst, rest, and so on. So you can imagine 
but it has many important functions and it uses up a lot of energy and it produces a lot of waste like any engine that puts out waste, puts out exhaust fumes and so on. Right. So that cell does have to have a lot of fuel and a lot of oxygen. They're the two main things that we that we take in to support that cell. So we really have to be very, very concerned about what we eat and what we breathe. And we've got two big issues in our society at the moment. Food quality is an issue yes. as well as air quality, even just access to air uh, as opposed to you know, being in stuffy buildings, going out to, you know, being in some big cities around the world where they've got a lot of pollution issues. So it might seem a simple solution to your listeners just to say, hey, just eat well and have plenty of oxygen. But uh, for some, uh, and for us, we don't see it as a privilege, but I can tell you what, it is a great privilege in many, many societies in our world. So, you know, I, I see in many cases just improving food and oxygen quality uh, as very, very important improving their neurological health. So as far as the, the concept of activation, that's the third pillar. You have your pillars of wellness you're talking about there, but as far as our third pillar in treating people, yeah. um, activation is really quite simple. Here it is. Use it or lose it. Right. Activation yeah. means cells are stimulated by chemical neurotransmitters which result in the neuron being healthier. And one of the simple things to do is use it, and that's what we get a lot of our patients to try and do, get up and get going. And is that a, a general sense? I mean, obviously, you want someone to be walking. You want them to be active. We know that the, they talk about the sitting is the new smoking. Is it more of a general thing that you're wanting people to do, or is this something that's really honed in and specific and individual? We have general instructions across the board for everyone. So whether you've had a major stroke, whether you've had a, a, a knock on the head, whether you've had a viral infection of your balance system, whether you've got diabetes and it's now it's now affecting your nervous system, we uh, will say to all our patients: Listen, before you start with our work, are you eating well? Are you ensuring you're getting the, the appropriate nutrients? Are you ensuring you're minimising toxins? You're not going high sugar. You're trying to work out on all the the, the pro-inflammatory foods. Reduce them as much as you can. And are you in a good breathing environment now? Then specifically, for some people with specific problems they have, yes, we may be looking much more closely at the food, at various supplements they might be able to take that we know might be able to help a particular problem in a particular part of their nervous system. And in some people, we know they have great diminishment in the ability to breathe, so we have to get them to do very specific breathing exercises. Now, we know that area is controlled by the brain, so even getting someone to do breathing exercises is good for your brain, not just for oxygen, but to ex exercise that area of the brain. So, like yep, you, we like have general said, use, and we have specific. Yeah, like you said, use it or lose it, mm. no matter what. You know, with your experience, Paul, you know, um, just imagine if we could, uh, as practitioners, just get, have patients just improve their substrates improve their um, baseline health in these sort of areas, even before we touch them via, say, say neurorehabilitation, it would make massive differences, wouldn't it? Oh, would it what? I mean, it, it's quite ironic that I work in a very privileged society, in a privileged part of uh, a very privileged city, in a very privileged country, but... We still see people who, for either lack of knowledge or lack of will, um, or driven by stress and stress reactions to their life and so on, or reward-based you know, activities, coming in, eating very, very poorly, not exercising, and having very poor oxygenation situations. So, look, if, if we could learn all those things that in prep and 
grade one and grade two, so they become part of our life. So when we do encounter ill health from something else, we have a nice, as you said, a nice baseline pool to uh, work on. That would be fantastic. And then the extension of that, I suppose, is that you know our society then looks for a pill to be the elixir to fix everything and the panacea of all ills, and then and then. Um... And, and, you know, it puts pressure on medical doctors to say, give me a solution, give me a pill, and uh, creates this sort of culture where, you know what, Health's, health is actually hard work. Health is an investment. It's, it's not just a pure right and entitlement. We all have to really work hard at it. What do you think? Well, it's interesting because uh, you, you alluded to my PhD in health psychology uh, from some years ago, and what you've addressed is really what we call two locuses of control in health behaviour. We have people who have a quite significant external locus of control. They believe that health comes from without. They're going to take something or have something done to them that is going to actually restore their health and wellness. Then we have other people who have an internal locus of control of their health behaviour, and these are the people who totally believe that it's their change, their ability to respond and eat well, exercise well, change their health behaviour themselves that leads to their wellness and restoration of wellness. So, you know, we're always addressing that in our practice. Uh, We try to identify that very, very quickly. If we can identify that locus of control, Uh, research has found that it's pretty tough to change an external locus, and you'll probably know that, you guys, in your own practices, once you identify a very serious external locus of control person, getting them to, to come back and explaining that the health comes from within them can be very difficult. We try, but uh, there is a lot of evidence suggests that uh, still there's a lot of work to be done in, in shifting people. And in the end, it's a lot easier just to deliver the, the treatment and not even go with it. So hopefully this, this back chat for you is, is explaining to your listeners that you've got to make that effort, you know. Fantastic. So there's no doubt that those that have an internal locus are much easier to have as clients because they'll be motivated, they'll follow programs, they'll do their exercises, they'll change their lifestyle based on your advice. With these people who have an external locus, how much of that is ingrained in them or how much of that is, I guess, society? Because very much all the advertising for for, uh, for pharmaceuticals is all about, you know, take two of these pills and if pain persists, see your doctor. We're, we're very much, I guess, driven towards that external locus by advertising, aren't we? We are. Yeah, look, there's, there's some evidence and, and the research is pretty big in this area, but there's what we call a, a locus of control phenotype. In other words, it appears that some people are just born uh, with their health behaviour constructs embedded onto their DNA. Um, and just as much as their earlobes stick to the side of their head and some people don't, that's the way it is. Blue eyes, green eyes, earlobes to stuck and external locus of control. So, you know, some people you really have to unfortunately or fortunately, you have to account for that in your strategies and you have to set up your own health behaviour and health protocol strategies to ensure that people still, I mean, we still have an obligation to move those people towards a, a successful health outcome. Of course, yes. um, But you're dead right. They are, you know, sometimes I think if I could have that questionnaire and then direct all the externals uh, somewhere else, that would be great. But, you know, the, I, I love the challenge. I love the challenge in my practice. And you know what, I think also what you've, you've enlightened enlightened our audience about too, Paul, is, especially for young practitioners of, of different, of any persuasion, is how important is 
you know, like a tenet of health psychology. You know, we have to, as practitioners, good practitioners, um, great practitioners, really, um, recognize what you're talking about here as regards locus of control or loci of controls, if we're comparing internal to external. Certainly very difficult to, I suppose, handle in a brief encounter and obviously co-management with uh, health psychologists could be means by which we can have that area of the brain be looked at cognitively to try and help. Can you maybe share some experience with that? Yeah, I think that uh, sometimes people's external locus of control behaviours get, get them into serious problems. And, and obviously the, the, the biggest one is pharma, pharmaceutical addiction. So we see people who have uh, taken drugs for their pain, taken drugs for their anxiety, taken drugs in response to the adaptive strategy that the problem has caused. So... You know, sometimes people, you know, unfortunately as well, may have had some experience in their lives that's also given them some sort of external locus control loop they can't get out of. They may have had an unfortunate uh, incident as a child in sexual abuse, for example. So those types of experiences right along the line, right down a person's life to their birth, to their present time in your office, all I can say to you, to, to your, your young practitioners that are listening now, is that you need to really identify that nice and early before you start implementing your strategies because if you're not recognising that that could be a block to your patients moving forward, then, then you may not get the successful outcomes. If you can recognise it, then you may be able to have a good referral network where you can refer your patients to co-managers and psychologists are fantastic. In my practice, we have psychologists in my practice and, and we work together. Uh, along those lines. So, uh, yes, it's it's extremely important. You need to get those networks set up early in your practice. You need to recognise that your patients need that concern and that style because many of the cases we're seeing, you know, they're, they're multifactorial. They've got layers and layers of, of issues. So you, I don't think any one practitioner can help uh, by themselves. Excellent. Look, as we alluded to at the start of the show, we have five pillars that we focus on at Backchat. And uh, another health pillar is moving well. Is there a mind-body connection with brain neurology associated with movement too, Paul? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think uh, neurorehabilitation or neurology would be uh, kidding itself if it didn't recognise that movement and mind has been around for thousands of years. Ayurvedic medicine, Chinese medicine, um, have both, for example, uh, and there are many other Eastern styles of uh, movement and, and mind-body connections, they've been incorporating formal movements in their health models, uh, for example, in the form of yoga and tai chi and what I just mentioned. Um, but we do know um, now, and, and I don't like taking uh, Western medicine really taking any credit for discovering anything, but when we did see patients, you know, coming back and saying, I feel a lot better after doing my yoga and my Tai Chi, exploring that at a neuroscience basis and trying to bring that into the, our clinical applications, we can see the complex movements has been very, very beneficial to health. There's been a lot of evidence along that line. So, you know, unfortunately for us, we exist in Western culture sitting between two great extremes. We can sit at a computer screen for many hours at a time or we can go to a gym and pound ourselves for, you know, an hour until we're almost melted to nothing at a fitness center. So there's plenty of room for something in between and activities like yoga, tai chi. And now as we see the Western movements, uh, Pilates, uh, Alexander technique uh, and a range of other uh, techniques are starting to come in. 
um, to take over, to give patients the opportunity to have some formalised movement, slow, gentle. Otherwise, gentle exercise like walking, uh, not the bike riding that we heard uh, Joel going through. Uh, gee, I had my heart in my mouth there, I can tell you, Anthony. I, was, I thought that's, the end of that story may not be great, but I'm, I'm glad to hear that both father and son are well. Uh, but if you can just slow him down a bit, you can actually say to him, alluding to that before, that you know it's good for you, but it can be bad for you. So, yeah. uh, so son's fine. Father's still recovering, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still recovering, listening to it. <laughs> but Paul, can I just address another issue there? Because if we look at you know some of the things you describe with yoga and Pilates, and in today's sort of evidence-based culture that that uh, medicine is sort of dictating. In fairness to these disciplines, there's there's perhaps not a lot of evidence supporting them, but we see empirically, anecdotally in all our practices, how this is just uh, fantastic for our our patients or our clients. How do you sort of answer that sort of conundrum? Well, I think it's very important to understand, and, and my PhD studies, I was very blessed to be in the United Kingdom in the 90s when the whole evidence-based model started to emerge in the UK. It's where it started. Um, and I think it's important to recognise that the, the demand on practitioners to become evidence-based has only been approximately 20 years, uh, maybe 25. So uh, it's, it's just, it's, it's impossible for practitioners who have been using models and methods of care, whether it be a physiotherapist tapping a chest and a respiratory ward in a hospital to a podiatrist, uh, you know, cutting toenails, and they've been doing it for years, to suggest that you can't do it now because there's no uh, Cochrane uh, collaboration uh, standard of evidence. I think that is probably a ludicrous and disingenuous um, situation for us. But I think... We, we need, as, as all practitioners do, to in, embark and, in, and, and engage in a transition to evidence base. Okay. So I don't think we have to actually throw out what we've seen works empirically, but we have to start washing across all our professions, just starting to put us all through a nice gentle wash cycle, okay, <laughs> to ensure that we can clean out what is obviously not evidence-based right. and then make sure that coming out of the area that we're hanging out to dry is a nice, crisp, evidence-based methodology. Now, that might take another 20 years. I don't think we should be pushed into it, um, but I, I do think we should engage in it. So we need to answer our critics. Um, being honest, yep, we don't have it, and we yes. are engaging in a transition to evidence-based. And therefore, we're evidence-informed, So, uh, and that's very important. Of course, because evidence-based isn't just about show me the research to justify a procedure. It's also about the respect for experience, empirical evidence, and also the, uh, the desires of the patient. So, you know, if, if a patient doesn't want to go down one health path and chooses something else, that's, that's got to be something that's respected as well. Absolutely. So where do you, just moving on from here, where, where do you see sort of chiropractic neurorehabilitation going? Well, I, I've been lecturing in this area. I, I'm involved in teaching on a curriculum, a post-grad curriculum for chiros, and I've been doing that for 15 years, and I've been lecturing around all over the place um, for that time. So when I first started back here in uh, late 90s, early 2000s in Australia, um, the whole functional neuro model, the connectivity model that we talk about, uh, really wasn't 
known much. Um, I was, once again, blessed to be involved in that in my studies in Europe. But since then, really, there has been just an explosion in, in the functional knowledge of brain and nervous system um, in that time. It's just quite amazing. So, And gradually down the line, which is why you've probably asked me onto this, uh, onto this podcast, is that this has been translated to the public. You can see... You know, you can see in the newspaper, on uh, on general TV, on information sessions, and and you know National Geographic programs that it's really people are interested. They want to know how it's working. They don't want this information limited to one small group of the medical profession. Uh, the access to information is really huge. So um, now. If I look to say, right, that explosion's occurred, it's all happening, people are much more informed, what's it going to be like in, say, 20 years' time? I think you'll see people coming in for very specific stimulation of parts of their nervous system. Um, it'll be done by either manual or technological methods. You might have a, you know, a helmet put on you, someone sitting there wiring you up. I think that might be done before pharmacological methods. Wow. I think we may have a situation where a patient might walk into your office and sitting there will be a little cabinet in there, will be an MRI scanner. Uh, it might be on your table. Um, that'll be done with the patient there. You'll probably make a phone call to uh, to India. There'll be a neuroradiologist sitting there. Sanjeev will be waiting. Um, he'll <laughs> give a quote for that MRI reading. Uh, you'll say to the patient, Sanjeev's going to actually re uh, read these now. Do you want to? Pay your visa card and away you go. That's my future. It's there. I can right. see it coming. Yeah. I know some of your listeners uh, may, if this is being listened to in 20 years' time, say, wow, that guy had uh, a real insight to the future. But it is accelerating. The bottom line here is just going berserk. So I think the information here is going to far exceed even the information about pharmacological methods because it's very hard to target one cell with a drug. Yes. It's getting a lot easier to start to target smaller groups and smaller sections of the brain with technological applications. So, and once biotech companies get involved, um, we'll see an explosion. So I think many people in the end will use this type of therapy first and probably use pharma pharmaceuticals second. Um, and I hope that's the case because there's benefits of pharmaceuticals, no doubt. No one's yeah. saying there's not. Yeah. But the adverse reactions at the moment are being known about more. Um, so I think your GP will be reluctant to give you something that he knows or she knows is going to be an adverse reaction and maybe sending you off to try something else first. So uh, that, that's where I think it's going to go. And I think, you know, we all recognise that in acute care, you know, pharmacological management is sometimes the only way to go. If you're, if you're in a hospital setting, accident, emergency, you know, that's the difference between sometimes life and death. We're never going to dispute that. I suppose it's maybe with the chronic management, where we know that the government is spending incredible amounts of money uh, and we know from the probably the natural healthcare budget, we are getting a tiny part of that component um, that if we could just change the sort of dial of money allocation so that we can have more sprouting and support of natural healthcare, it might make a massive difference to the well-being, especially when we discussed earlier in the show about those important substrates, which basically is really education as much as anything else, isn't it, Paul? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it, that, that, if you're just alluding to the whole area of that background health education, um, you know, I, I agree totally with exactly what you said, Paul. Now, if we look at this uh, next question, which is the impactor, Anthony. So the impactor is something where I suppose we've thought about as a, a question to get an insight about our, our, health, our, our health expert 
and uh, we both recognise how lucky we are, Anthony, to have uh, someone like Paul on the other other end of this call. Fantastic, yeah. And we want to know what makes you tick, Paul. So what I want to ask you is, is there a specific moment, incident, influence that changed perhaps your life and sort of made you rethink or pushed you into sort of the position you are now as a high achiever in the work that you do every day? Um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be honest here, Paul. You, you've, you've asked me this question. You gave me a little bit of time on this, and, and I think it was important that you did. Um, you know, and for the sake of my wife, my family, and so on, I've got to make sure that I, I, I state publicly here that the important things that have happened to me is my, my marriage and my children and so on. But in my profession, yes. 32 odd years, and I've been around all over the place, there's, there's been a lot of things that happened, but one thing does stand out, um, which, um, if you, if you will just indulge me for a second. Yeah, I'll, absolutely. I'll Go for it. You, you've got the platform. I, I moved to Ireland from Australia uh, in the in the late 80s and 90s, and while I was there, I studied. I was doing a study. One of the other things I was doing was uh, traditional Chinese medicine, <laughs> and um, we had to get a number of cases together to present on a weekend when we were studying. And um, one of my patients explained to me that she had some gut problems, and um, and I thought, oh, this could be a good case for a presenting to the the other student body, the rest of the student body on one of my study weekends for uh, my Chinese medicine. Uh, studies. So we sat down and um, I started a history with her and as you're probably aware the Chinese medicine history is a lot longer. So um, she started explaining to me how her gut troubles had started from the time she was an orphan in an orphanage in the United Kingdom where wow. she had been locked in a cupboard for oh, 12 years. Wow. Oh my goodness. And uh, she existed in a cupboard. She was fed in the cupboard. She was punished every time she came out. So the majority of her life from the age of five to 15 was in a cupboard. Now, I wasn't expecting that answer. I wasn't expecting that story. And at the time, I had uh, four young children. um, And all that I could do was uh, just, as she was talking, just think about my children. And I transferred. And it's one of the the biggest issues that you have um, in, in practice and is ensuring that you have great empathy, um, you have great care, but at the same time you have that ability as an experienced practitioner to put a, a perspex, a clear perspex barrier between you and your patient. Well, she got past that. Yeah. Uh, I was inexperienced in dealing with that, so um, I finished up with her and I went home and I was distraught. I, uh, I thought I'll never actually ask another patient another question again. I was greatly fearful that I would get an answer that was going to really disturb me. Mm. That following weekend, I had to present that case. Uh, and it, it took a lot. And the lecturer, a, a lovely lady, a lovely uh, English woman who was who was uh, lecturing us, saw that I was a little bit disturbed in the, mm. in the presentation. She came up to me afterwards and said, what was wrong? And I said, look, I really feel like I want to give up everything here now. I, my whole life has been disturbed. I'm finding it hard to sleep uh, just over this particular conversation. And I felt that this this patient had drained me. Mm. I had nothing mm. left now yeah. to give. She drained me. I, she plugged into me and sucked everything out of me. So she sat there and listened and said, look, I, I have to say that, you know, it's a great experience that you've had and it's been a great learning experience for you, but can I suggest to you, this is how I deal with my patients, that you, you had mentioned that she had plugged into you, so we have this imaginary tube running from you to the patient. There are two small channels in that tube. One, that the patient is getting something out of you, and the other one, that you are getting something out of the patient. Okay. Every mm. therapeutic encounter is an exchange. Yeah. At the moment, you're just focusing on what she got out of you. 
You have got a lot out of this encounter. So make sure for the rest of your practice life, when you sit down to have a therapeutic interaction with your patient and you have that imaginary plug-in, because that's what we do, that you are getting as much out of your patients as they are getting out of you. And that's what's going to keep you practicing for the rest of your life and keep you enthusiastic and passionate because you want to plug in every time someone comes in because you're going to grow with your patients. And I have to say, that has been the best lesson. I mean, it changed me again. I went from hitting rock bottom to becoming passionate again within 24 hours. And that is now 20 years ago, 22 years ago. I was 10 years in practice at that point. So I'm just looking forward to the next 32 years of practice. I I never want to stop this. I love plugging into my patients, and that keeps me going. Fantastic. What a great reason to get up early on a Monday morning and go to practice. Um, now, what we like to wrap up with, uh, uh, Paul, is to, is to give our listeners some take-home messages uh, and something that you know, can inspire them, some calls to action. So have you got maybe three tips that you could give our listeners that they could sort of take out of uh, the, the experience with us today? Okay. Um, yeah, look, I, I think... We can, I can give you some tips across the board, I think, for, you know, for young, for adolescent and for elderly here. Um, first of all, I would say to you that um, using your full range of senses would be a massively important thing for you to do every day. Don't just smell the roses, touch them. Listen to them, look at them, taste them even if that's necessary. Go to the top of the mountain and go to the bottom of the valley and enjoy both. So we've been given the gift of our senses. Our brain wants us to use our senses. We are often stuck in environments in our very busy Western world where we don't get a chance to do that. But I want you to think about yourself when you go on a holiday and you're walking down now to that sea and you're smelling the sea, you're listening to the birds, you're looking at the sun, you're feeling the sand between your toes. Try and have that attitude every day. Secondly, that's great. Learn a word, a new word every day. Do something new every day. You can new action, new new study, new sport. Do new golf swing, new tennis. I know you're interested in tennis as well, Anthony. (laughs) Do something every day. Um, And when you are learning and you have new learning, the first emotional experience you're going to have is frustration. That's good. Because when you're frustrated, your brain is learning. So you're making new connections. That's the second. And the third tip that that you've asked me about, I I think that you need to understand that your emotional brain is wired to experience different emotions. And one of the things that I see in a lot of my uh, patients and perhaps younger patients these days, they really do feel that they need to be in a state of permanent and constant happiness. Yeah. Now, we're not wired to be in a state of permanent, constant happiness, just as much as we're not wired to be in a state of anger permanently or sadness permanently or whatever. But we have those ranges of emotions. So make sure that you're not in a fixated emotional state and understand it's okay to be sad and angry. And maybe I would suggest that you pursue fulfillment. Wow. Pursuing fulfillment will enable you to experience all those ranges of emotions. Happiness pursuit, mm, not good for the brain. Fulfillment will allow you to understand. You can be sad and angry. You can be anxious. You can be depressed. You can be elated. But it's a, it's a great a great aspiration. And still be fulfilled. That's 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 fantastic. That's really powerful, isn't it? It is because you know we think about it. How many sort of personal development seminars are built on the concept of happiness? That you know you will come out of our day plenary being a happy person and 
and this sort of striving for this concept of being happy when if we hear what Dr. Nunes mentioned to us in the context of actually having a fulfillment of all emotions, that happiness is only really part of it. And yeah. you know, it's not, not the complete sort of package. It's, it's, not, really. it's not, no, it's not wholesome, is it? Thank you, Dr. Noon, for sharing not only your clinical knowledge, but also your personal experiences. Thank you for listening to Backchat. For more information, our listeners can go to our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash Backchat podcast and or the Wellness Couch website for all relevant links to today's show. Be the best of what you do and you will grow and inspire others around you. We look forward to catching up with you on our next Back Chat Podcast. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.